This is a Solitude Media Originals podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. I was joined this time with Frank Fahey. Frank has had a varied career as a teacher, journalist, publisher and musician. Frank burst into the Salt Hill Media Studios like a flamboyance of flamingos, all alliterative and full of ideas as to how the podcast episode could open. And yeah, I went along with it. So you're going to hear a short reading from him for about five minutes and then you'll hear our conversation. You will hear in the conversation our rapport developing in earnest because I didn't really know Frank at all, except that he was running this right on group. And yeah, he seemed like he was an interesting guy because he's publishing local writers who haven't had much writing experience. So being a champion for Galway, I thought this would be perfect for the Galway podcast. Having a conversation with Frank was sometimes a bit like the proverbial kneeling jelly to the wall, except he's pretty well spoken, so it was more like kneeling a trifle to the wall. And you'll see that it was quite elongated. So having a conversation with Frank was a bit like kneeling an elongated, jellified trifle to the wall. And I mean that respectfully, of course. If you like what it is that I am doing here with the Galway podcast, please subscribe or follow and share it. Also, if you get an opportunity to leave a positive rating, please do that. I have not earned any money from this podcast yet. It's all been made in my spare time. I'm not complaining. I'm just stating the facts. At the moment, I'm just building the audience. So you can help me do that. I'll work out how to monetize it down the line, but... For now, I haven't got enough listeners. So the sooner it spreads, the sooner it can make money, and the better it can get, because I'll be able to devote even more time to it. Another way you can support Salt Hill Media is by booking yourself a recording, a recording of your life story, or that of a loved one. So maybe you have an aunt or an uncle or a parent or a grandparent, that you would like to record the life story of for your children or for your nieces or nephews or whatever. It's a nice gift as a birthday present or an anniversary present. And the reasons for this is because, well, I never met my grandfathers and I always wondered what they were like. So I thought I'd record my parents. Then what happened was my children came along and my mother's since passed. And although they remembered their grandmother, One day they will ask me, what was granny like? So I will be able to give them a video and I will be able to say, you tell me. I'm recording interviews of people. Now it's coming through. It's a bit of a concept that I'm selling. But I do tell people though, get that video made because more times than not, it doesn't get made. Okay, I've done enough talking again. So without any further crack from me, I bring you... Mr. Frank Fahey's Fun and Frolics. This is the Galway Podcast. People find it hard to believe me when I tell them that I wrote my first book when I was aged three. This is how it happened. My first book. Perched on the delicate tips of my toes, 
I manipulated the spherical yellowed handle of the time-worn kitchen door. As it yawned before me, tendrils of steam danced in the air, emanating from the colossal aga. The saccharine allure of cinnamon, a symphony of apples, the sizzling serenade of succulent steak, glossy tiles, ebony and ivory, bore the soft imprints of footfall, crisscrossing to and from the pantry like an ephemeral dance. From the diaphanous haze, Mama emerged, taken aback. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, child, don't come a step further. Sometimes when she prayed, she shouted. Mama, Mama, look, I write it, a book. Don't stand, oh, heavenly mercy. Then in a softer, kinder voice, Did you write something, pet? Her paisley apron exhaled plumes of flower. Mama, look, pages, fulled. Mama's thoughts should have been occupied with the apple pie baking in the oven. Himself hates it when the crust gets too hard and brown, and the meat for the stew would be overcooked if she didn't turn it in the pan, and the carrots needed to be washed and sliced, and, Lord and his blessed mother, she forgot the parsnips. Himself always likes a few parsnips, and the potatoes needed peeling, and her currenty cake was only half ready, and the blessed flour had to be cleaned up from the floor, and... and... Would you look at my little dot? Poor Francis, the copybook nearly as big as himself, bless him, and the scrawls all over the pages. Sweet Jesus, but he didn't half use the crayon. Well, bless his little heart, the poor manning, and the big blue eyes of him. Would you look at the hole in his gansey? Oh, sacred divine, could you ever keep them in clothes? Mama, it's my book, my new book. Mama's hands clasped her head. Flecks of white streaked her beautiful brown hair. I gasped at the way she suddenly looked so old. As I clung firmly to my precious manuscript, Mama swept me up into her arms. Gently prizing the copybook from my fists, she settled me onto her knee. Now, little man, what have we got here? I've been working hard, Mama, like you said, very, 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 very hard. And I've been writing and writing and writing. And I fold up the whole book. And look, Mama, I stayed inside the lines and, 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 I'll need a new copy book now. Oh, a book. You have written a complete book. What a clever little man. Who is the best writer in the world? My little man. And in such a short time, sacred heart. Now, will we read it? Yes, Mama. You read it and I'll tell you if you're right. Exhausted after all my hard work, I snuggled up in her warm lap.
cosy, and I listened to her read, and I helped her to turn the pages, and I made sure that she didn't make any mistakes. Thank thank you, Fender. You're welcome. (laughs) Thank Thank you very much for that. That was beautiful. I hope that I proved that I wrote my first novel at the age of three. Well... (laughs) Photoshopping is is still, is still an issue today, and not, not only photoshopping AI. So, uh, but I mean, I'd like to see the crayon. <laughs> so, yeah, who are you, and what do you do? Well, my name is Frank Fahey, and what I do is books. <laughs> um, all my life, I've been involved in writing and reading and books. Um, my ambition when I was young was to be a journalist. Um, I was so intent on this ambition that I taught myself how to type, how to touch type at the age of seven. And the way I did that was I picked up a manual about where you're supposed to place your fingers and so on. But I locked myself away in a darkened room and I began to seek out the letter A with my um, pinky finger. And I pressed a few A's and then I turned on the light and I could see that I typed X and Z and Y and all these other things. But I eventually got to recognize where A was. And then I did the same for AB and ABC until I got to X, Y, Z. And believe it or believe it not, I taught myself how to touch type in the dark. Um, Later on, I started my own newspaper. Um, I actually brought along a copy of uh, the newspaper, which is called Western Life. And uh, this was done, I'm jumping way ahead here from my childhood now to my student days. When I was in Galway University doing a degree in in, uh, English and philosophy, um, I gave up the college for a while because I was so involved in the university newspaper, which was called Unity, that we took the Unity um, model and instead of it coming out once or twice a year, we brought it out every week. Now, when you're bringing out a weekly newspaper, you don't have much time left for lectures and so on. So I abandoned the lectures and concentrated on the newspaper. The newspaper was very successful. Um, In one issue, we had an interview with the artist Neil Tobin. We had another interview with Kader Asmal. Older listeners will know who he was, the South African uh, politician. And we had interviews with RTE personalities and so on and so forth. We had a 32-page special, which at the time was more or less unheard of. It would be equal to the Connacht Tribune and the Galway Advertiser hadn't started around that time. But we, we felt... Well, what, what time is that, right? We're talking about 1973. Okay. Now, in 1974, I'm holding here for Fender, uh, issue one, Western Life, Thursday, June the 6th, 1974. And I'm holding a crinkly old newspaper. And this was our uh, very first Western wow. Life. We, we, um, we hired an office in Abbeygate Street, within view of the Connacht Tribune, actually. And uh, we set ourselves up and we called ourselves the Quality Weekly Newspaper. And we did everything. When I say we, my friend Tom Curtin and myself, um, we did all the editing, we did all the typing, we did all the processing. Now, as you can imagine, the Connacht Tribune and the Galway Advertiser uh, would look upon us uh, not, not, you know, as, as a bit of opposition, I suppose. And uh, therefore, we had to go to Cavan 
to get the newspaper printed. So every Tuesday night, we'd stock up our gear in a van and drive through the night to the Anglo-Salt newspaper. And the Anglo-Salt opened up at 8 o'clock in the morning and they'd say, right, lads, where's the copy? And we were still typing away and trying to get the pages ready. You have to remember that in 1974... There was no such thing as as uh, uh, computers and word processors. It was really uh, the, the national papers were just still at the hot metal press stage, and things were very primitive by comparison with what th- what way things are now. Anyway, long story short, it was the happiest few months of my life because I was constantly writing, I was constantly reporting, I was constantly taking pictures. We introduced so many features, the pub of the week competition. We introduced for the first time a ladies' homepage. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, where there was a cookery page and we got... Different times, home, different, different times. times. We got a home economics teacher called Moira to start and to give recipes and, and tips and so on. Later on, she became famous in her own right uh, in other newspapers. Anyway, we were two penniless students who had an idea and we ran with it. We survived for about four months, but there were four of the happiest months of my life. And how did you fund it? We funded it through advertising. Yeah. Uh, we got a bank loan huh? to start out. We bought a thing, now again, older listeners might know this, an IBM compositor. Now, an IBM compositor was about the size of a photocopying machine and it had a keyboard. And the way it worked was you had to key in a line of text and up on top you would see a bar with four or five colors, red, yellow, green, blue and so on. And when the bell went off to say you were approaching the end of the line, you finished your word and looked at the color and it was, let's say, blue. So you put B for blue at the end of that line. Then you came to the next line and continued on your typing. You heard the bell again and this time you looked up at the line and it was Y, Y for yellow. And you typed line by line by line, putting a color code at the end of every line. Then what did we do? Uh, Fender should have asked that question. But yeah, well, then let's <laughs> cut that in. <laughs> then what did you do? <laughs> anyway, uh, what we had to do then was to take that that uh, column, if you like, and do it in reverse order. If it was a Y for yellow, you had to type Y first, then the line. B for blue, blue, you had to type B first, and then the line. R for red, you type the R first, and so on and so forth. And that produced a justified string or a justified column like you see in the newspaper today. That was how labor intensive the whole process was. You then had to cut up these long, streels of columns into to make it look like a newspaper article. We used to refer to it. Tom did a lot of, Tom Curtin did a lot of the design work. I did all of the typing work. And uh, he said, Frank, I have to cut out this bit. And I'd say, no, 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 don't cut out that bit. That's an important bit. Well, you should have put it up at the top then. <laughs> and which is very good journalistic advice. But um, we described our, our method as literature by the inch. Yes. So yes. It, it didn't matter so much yeah, what was down at the bottom of the article because it was in danger of being chopped off. And we went out and took photographs and we placed the photographs and we had to glue the whole lot down onto a piece of cardboard, basically. We brought these pieces of cardboard to the Anglo-Salt. They made a metal place of the, of the pages and they put the pages up on these big machines and then they printed out thousands or hundreds of copies. 
So you're very industrious students. Then where did that lead you to? Where did you end it up? It led from? me back in college <laughs> because <laughs> I hadn't finished my degree and my father in his wisdom decided that he wasn't going to pay for another years of education. And so I was in a bit of a quandary. So I simply paid the fee to resit the exam. But it meant that I couldn't attend any lectures. It meant that I had to study by myself and so on and so forth. Um, to make a long story short, I sat the exam and and got my BA. I immediately wanted to get into journalism, as you can imagine. I got work on some magazines, um, small bits and pieces. In Galway? Uh, no, in Dublin, actually. Um, but it became... Um, it, it was very difficult to get into the world, to get into the world of journalism. And uh, around about that time, I got married and uh, I needed a steady income. So what I decided to do and what I was advised to do was to go back and to go teaching. So I went to Maynooth University and did a HDIP there. And then I went to St. Pat's University, Pat's in uh, Drumcondra, which is now DCU. And I did a primary degree there and uh, went and went to primary school teaching. And I thought at that stage that my journalistic career was over. But in fact, it was only a beginning. Yes. What happened was I saw an advertisement after I was teaching for eight or nine or oh, ten. Where were, you, where were you teaching? Oh, sorry. I was teaching in Duleek in County Meath. Beautiful. And there's okay. plenty of stories in my books about Duleek County uh-huh. Meath. And uh, I had a great time teaching. I really enjoyed teaching. And uh, at the boys, I, there was a boys in a girls' school. Uh-huh. And my wife taught in the girls' school and, the, and I taught in the boys' school. But never the twain shall meet. Mm. Uh, one day I saw an advertisement in the Irish Times and it said they were looking for an editor who had journalistic experience and who had primary school teaching experience. And I said to them, your advertisement was written for me. So why were they looking for somebody with primary school experience? Because they were looking for an editor to edit the primary school's books. Oh. And people, it's it's a very um, technical and very precise um, uh, discipline, if you like, because as you know, uh, you know, children have only a capacity for so many words and so on and so forth. And having the experience of primary school teacher teaching enabled me to have a very acute sense of what would work in the written word. For the, actually, there's a very good story <coughs> in the new book coming out. Frank, called, is there a very good story in the new book that you have coming out? <laughs> Tell me there's about a, that. There's a very good story of this new book coming out, and it's called Jimmy Brady, and it tells the entire story of of uh, teaching in Dulic. Um, Wonderful, uh, uh, and it's amusing and informative as well. So, was this job a full time job? As oh, absolutely full time. I had to give up teaching, um, which again was completely disapproved of by my parents. Even though I was in my thirties, uh, they said, "What are you doing, giving up a good uh, pensionable job to go working in that? Uh, you know, to go working in a private company." And, and where was that job? Uh, it was the Educational Company of Ireland in Ballymount Road in Walkenstown in Dublin. Wonderful. So I commuted from Duleek, which was a journey of about 27, 30 miles every morning and every night before the M50 was built. And it was a two, two and a half hour commute. Um, funnily enough, when the M50 was built, there was a two, two and a half hour traffic jam. So it didn't actually improve the time going in and out. But I used to get up at half six, seven o'clock in the morning, drive to work. I wasn't home until very late, eight or nine. And in many ways, I missed my children growing up 
because by the time I came home, they were in bed. By the time I got up in the morning, they were still in bed. So I had to snatch as much time as possible with my children. Um, but it didn't do them any harm. They grew up very well and um, we, we love each other greatly. And um, um, I, we, were, we were very good parents to them and we had very good people looking after them when both of us were working. But I, I understand what the situation is because the drive that you had whenever you were a student drove you to pursue those four months of pain of blood, sweat and tears, of yes. publishing a paper by yourselves. That passion is always there. Yes. So you can do X, Y and Z jobs, but the passion is always going to bubble up, yes. manifest itself in different ways. If you didn't do that job, do you think you would have got into journalism some other way, somehow? Yeah, I'm convinced I would have, because even though I was, uh, sorry, while I was teaching, I was uh, doing magazines for the GAA. I was writing articles for the Drogheda Independent or sending them off anyway. I was writing poetry and sending it here, there and everywhere. So I was constantly writing. I think my interpretation of life is through the written word. Mm. Um, I, I don't think that that is a fact. Yes. And anybody who reads any of my books or any of the, the stories that I've read, you will feel that there is a love of, of words. It's, words are, are, are just so important and mean so much. So you were just explaining a moment ago about your editorial position. Please, can you carry on? Okay, um, I joined the educational company as a junior editor and I learned my trade with a wonderful, wonderful publisher called Ursula Daly. Uh, Ursula sat me down literally beside her and I was her apprentice for almost two years and there wasn't a dot or a comma that she would let past. And I learned so much. I am eternally grateful to Ursula Daly. Um, and she knows I am. We're, we're the best of friends. But um, she taught me so much about editing. She taught me how to look at a page in a completely different way. When you are editing, you are not reading. Uh, it's it's hard to believe, but you're not reading the words. You're looking at different things. You're looking at... It's hard to explain in a short interview. Try, try and explain. This is interesting. Uh, uh, when you read a book for pleasure, you're reading the book for pleasure. You can kind of skim along and whatever. When you're reading, when you're editing, you have to look at the size of the type. There may be the letter T might be bigger than the other letters in the word T-H-E. You have to look at the spaces between words. You have to look at the spaces after a full stop. Some authors at the time who were uh, using old-fashioned typewriters used to put in a double space. It was a typing um, um, technique. It was a typing discipline. But when word processors came in, you only had to put in one space. And that, <laughs> uh, my trained eye can see whether there's three spaces, two spaces, or one space between a word. Uh, and that is it. Like you, you train your brain. You train train your eye, you train your senses to look at um, uh, to look at a page and you see things differently. Just an interesting aside, if I may, I got long COVID. I got COVID about a year ago and that skill left me for many, many months. I couldn't uh, even read a page. I couldn't absorb a, a page. And when I was trying to edit, I'd come on to it later, but when I was trying to edit anthologies and things like that, I noticed I was making more and more mistakes. And it was, it, it, it COVID actually affected my concentration and affected what I learned. 
thankfully the skill has come back and is coming back gradually and we're back to that stage again but it, it there's a precision required that you don't uh, you know paragraph breaks um where commas should be inserted. I have a very good uh, example, if it's not too long-winded, of of something that uh, most people get it wrong. There is a question which is asked uh, in exams, and it appears very often in textbooks, and it's a question like, why do you think the man went to the shop? Let's just take that simple question. Why do you think the man went to the shop? And most people say, well, what's wrong with that? Do you think is a subordinate clause? If you take out the words, do you think, the sentence now becomes, why the man went to the shop, which makes no sense. If you said to somebody, why the man went to the shop, it doesn't make any sense. So the correct version of why do you think the man went to the shop should be, why did the man go to the shop? So you put in, why do you think did the man go to the shop? It's not what most people say, but it's absolutely grammatically correct. Little things like that. Uh, one learns lots of things. So would like you that. have to make your sentences grammatically correct for the publication? Absolutely. Uh, just very quickly, the, the authors of the textbooks are, were all uh, teachers, either primary teachers or secondary teachers. And the truth of the matter is they were not trained writers. They were trained to be teachers. So they knew their subject matter well, but then putting it onto paper and trying to explain it to students is a completely different skill. And that's where the editors come in. Um, um, you know, it was to help the teachers to express exactly what they wanted to say in order to get the precise message across to, to the pupils um, or to the students. And it, again, it's a skill and um, uh, lots of teachers, many teachers who produce books, um, you know, they receive royalties for the books. They do it as part time work and so on. Um, very well rewarded, I have to say. But in the background, the editors do an awful lot of work. In order to produce a textbook, it takes up to nine to 12 months to produce. You don't just produce it in a couple of weeks, yeah, uh, nine to 12 months. Um, I'm going to look up a quote from Oscar Wilde. Have you ever heard this quote? About putting in the comma? Yeah. Yeah. Do you know it? Yes. Uh, so Oscar Wilde said that you could spend the whole morning deciding to put in a comma and in the afternoon you take it out. <laughs> that wasn't the one I was thinking of, actually. Uh, I've just found it here. Um, he gives his, his editor the proofs of his novel and he says, I have read them very carefully. And I think all is correct with one exception. Like most Irishmen, I sometimes write, I will be there when it should be, I shall be there, and so on. Would you, like a dear fellow, mind going through the proofs? And if you see any wills or shells used wrongly, put them right and then pass for press. Of course, if you should spot anything else that strikes you as wrong, I'd be infinitely obliged if you would make the correction. So isn't that interesting that even Oscar Wilde was misusing his wills and shells? It's, when you were reading that, it reminded me actually of uh, one of the authors um, who failed to return his proofs. And I rang him up and I said, you haven't sent back the proofs. And he said, I didn't send back the proofs. And I said, why not? And he said, 
I'm not familiar with the text. <laughs> the editorial process had knocked out so much um, stuff and I had rewritten so many questions for, for, for him that he claimed he was not familiar with the text and I was to go ahead and print it and he would quite uh, happily uh, take the royalties. So when you ask me a question about how many books have I published, the number is indeterminate. So how long were you acting as an editor for and where did you go thereafter? Okay, well, to, to answer the second part of the question first, I didn't go anywhere thereafter. I stayed with the educational company for my entire career. I went from editor to senior editor to commissioning editor and so on and so forth. And eventually I became the publisher in the educational company. I was there for the best part of 30 years. Um, I left eventually in 2007, I think it was, and I branched out on my own with my own laptop. I set up a company called Fahi Publishing Limited. And, and is I, that in Barna, I understand? No, no, uh, I was in Dublin at that stage. Okay. And it was a little bit later that I moved to Barna when I uh, retired. What I did was basically the same sort of work, but I was doing it for myself rather than for an organisation. And I was able to pick and choose the projects. Uh, but it was far easier from the point of view of stress. And I didn't have to run the entire um, publishing department and so on and so forth. Um, so it was, it was a great change. And there was a huge sense of satisfaction about being able to learn, earn a living from a little laptop. I was able to work at home at my journey. Instead of driving so many hours in and out to work, I was able to walk down the steps of the stairs and onto my, onto my office with a cup of coffee and leisurely work away. And I would work from morning to night. On my, in my first year, I edited 16 books. 16 oh, textbooks. How, so they're not all by you? So oh, no, no, so, no not um, all by me, no. How do you choose which to publish? Oh, well, sorry, as a publisher, you... First, let me explain that there are approximately 12 possibly more now, uh, educational publishers in Ireland. There are the big six, yeah, but most people have heard of uh, the educational company, of course, which is one of the biggest, uh, isn't the, the biggest. Then there's Follins and Fallons and Gillam Macmillan, and there was Mentor Press and so on, the Celtic Press. There was a number of people. So the way that the system worked was the Department of Education would send out a syllabus, let's say for history, for junior cert, and they would specify what years are going to be examined and what, what, what the, the, the book should contain. Each of, let's say, six publishers would, would follow the syllabus and they would recruit teachers who had a high reputation in history to write the history books. So in, in effect, what happened was you had six history books from six different companies and each company, it was a cutthroat business really to try and get the teachers to buy your publication instead of the other one, the opposition one. And what happened, publishers, I want to get this dig in, if you don't mind, um, Fender, I want to get this dig in because I'm constantly being, being uh, taunted by the barbed remark that um, publishers are only in it for the money and that they constantly change books every year. 
Um, the fact of the matter is, just take the example of history. There are six history books available. The teachers make the choice as to which company's book they will purchase. They proceed to ask their pupils to purchase the books. They teach the book maybe for a year. And for some reason, they may not like the book. They might like the pictures. They might like the information, the way it's written. And they might say, oh, I don't like the Follins book. I think I'll change to the Follins book. And the teacher tells the, the pupils the next year to buy the Fallon's book. And I know the teachers might be up in arms against me for saying this, but it was not the publishers changing the books. As a, as a very firm example, I wrote some textbooks in 2007 for which I got a tiny royalty. And when I say tiny, a 1% or 2% royalty. I continue to this day, which is... 15, 16, 17 years later to receive a small royalty check because those books are still in circulation. So 1% royalty of the cost of the book, that sounds quite small. Is it that, is small. Is, is, that, is that a standard rate? No, 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 no. This was, I, I, as the editor, was getting this. This was oh. a special arrangement I had when I left the company. But <clears throat> no, the, the royalty to authors is, is generally speaking 10%. The authors get 10%. Uh, the logic behind it is that the publishers put up all the upfront money. Right. It costs 100000 200000 to do one history book. Uh, sorry, to, to, to make the history book first, but then the huge printing costs involved. So, I mean, an ordinary individual like Fender or myself would not, at that time anyway, would not have been able to afford to do a history book. You had, at that time, and still do, you have to pay for photographs, you have to pay for um, copyright material, you have to, you know, you have to pay printing costs, paper costs, uh, artists costs, cover costs. Uh, there's a huge expenditure in the making. And, and people might say, well, why don't you just produce them in black and white and do them cheaper. You see, we're living in a world of multimedia. Children are going to school, they watch TV at night. Well, some of that, maybe they're not even watching TV anymore. They're watching, play, whatever, um, computers and digital equipment. And your books have to compete with, a, you know, they have to be color, colorful, they have to be interesting. Otherwise, the children won't be interested. You couldn't give a black and white, well, you could give a black and white uh, history book to a child, but they wouldn't have much use for it. They, they need to be attracted into the subject. Have you moved towards the world of Kindle or are you still on the printing world? I left the educational company around about the time. I, I was there for two seismic changes. The first seismic change happened in 1989, if my memory is correct. And that was where I introduced word processing into the educational company. When I joined the educational company in 1984, uh, word processing was not available. We were still using uh, rubbers and pencils and uh, cow gum and the old-fashioned way that I'd spoke about the Western Life newspaper. It was uh, just a, a tiny degree above, above that. But uh, in 1989, um, I introduced four Apple machines into the... We, we got them on APRO. In other words, the uh, Apple company gave them to us on loan for three months. And we tried to design our books and tried to edit the books and tried to do the divil and all. Um, 
And we quickly learned that there is such a thing, there is such a thing in the world as a designer, there's such a thing in the world as an artist, and there's such a thing in the world as an editor. And it is not really feasible to ask an editor to do everything. So we've kindly returned the machines to the companies, but we did uh, keep the word processing part. Editors work with words mainly. And the whole revolution, I, I mean, there were people in the educational company and I, I, out of courtesy, I won't name them, but they did not want to change from the typewriter. They still wanted to use Tipex to, to, to change their, to, to cover up mistakes and to retype over it and so on. They had to be convinced that this uh, gadget, this word processor, you could cut and paste and you could change your mind and write a new sentence and cut out the other stuff nowadays that we take for granted. That was entirely new in 1989. And it took a long while for it to settle in and to embed itself into the publishing world. That reminds me of a quote. I used to work in PwC I was in the knowledge management department. It was basically the area between the business and the technology. And I was identifying areas where uh, change could happen, where we could improve, you know, the slickness of, of operations. And we would implement these changes. And there's a, my, I think it was my boss's boss explained to me one time, I don't know where he got this quote, but he said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> so that's a tipex. You're talking there about uh, you know typewriters. Yes. You know you can implement the uh, the strategy. Yes. But the culture is there. The culture is still yeah. there. That's Sorry, I, I interrupted you. No, that's very good. I I said that I was there for two seismic changes. That was one where the word processor came in, and then the next uh, seismic change, if I may say so, was changing from CDs and tapes. Where we did an awful lot of recordings, and we did tapes to accompany our new English language programs. We did French tapes, uh, German tapes, Spanish tapes for 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 learning. We got um, teachers and students to, to uh, you know, record on cassette tapes. Now, it's just some people mightn't even know what a cassette tape is nowadays. But the, the, the bigger change was the move to digital recording. And things now like um, even CDs are passe. Mm -hmm. I know some things are coming back, but CDs. Um, so I left around about the time of this seismic shift to, to real digital, where um, teachers expected to get a website and to get digital material free of charge to accompany any book. Now, uh, they would, and, and rightly so, I suppose, um, they would almost refuse to take a book unless there was backup supplementary material available freely on the website uh, to accompany the book. Now, you're saying teachers, but are you, do you mean that there's a teacher's union or individual teachers? Which way are you referring to teachers there? Well, there's both, actually. There's, there are teachers' unions, but the, the fact of the matter is teachers are the body that make uh, teachers individually or collectively in the schools are the people who decide which programme to select. So the frontline people, they're the frontline people, but then how are you getting the information from them that this is what they're after? 
Oh, our, there was a whole body of sales rep, reps from all the companies who uh, serviced every school in the country. And they've paid regular visits once a month, once every three weeks to find out uh, what books were selling, why, why they didn't like a particular book, uh, did they need more books and all that sort of thing. Uh, so there, there was a constant, um, what's it called, sales and marketing research being done. So going back to the Kindle world, um, was that happening whenever you were there as well? Not really. That's what I'm saying. I kind of I left just about the time when the Kindle world came in mm. and electronic books came in. There was a, um, I, I, probably, I probably left at the right time in many yeah. ways. Uh, we got away from the printed word. Now, having said that, all of my own books uh, are available on Kindle and in paperback and in hardback um, and available on Amazon. And we can come to that and we'll, we'll talk about. Absolutely brilliant. We'll, we'll, I'm we'll, about to ask this question. We'll, I can't wait to ask this we'll, question once the sentence finishes. <laughs> go ahead, Fender. Ask me. Ask me. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to ask you, how many books have you published? And then I'm going to ask you as well, because shall I, I'll talk very quickly about how you came onto my radar. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, it all starts with Bloomsday. Okay. So we're facing Bloomsday on the 16th of June. Yeah. And I thought, well, Nora Barnacle has got a house in Galway, and this yeah. is a Galway podcast, the celebration of Galway. So I came across this gentleman called Professor Brian Arkins, and I thought I'd do a chat with him. And then I also saw that Aileen Maloney, Patty Maloney's daughter, was doing a one-lady performance at the Town Hall Theatre of Molly Bloom's final monologue in Ulysses. So I went along to that. I thought, well, I'll chat to Brian after that. So I thought I should go to the performance first. I went to see um, Aideen's performance. It was spellbinding. An hour and a half, her just talking seven sentences, stream of consciousness, and she never dropped a beat. She was phenomenal. And I was saying to her about a quote that I heard whenever I was studying performing arts way back when. The quote was this. An actor who does not understand Shakespeare is an actor who cannot convey the meaning of Shakespeare. And she thoroughly understood the performance of, or the text of Joyce. Because she was not only acting it from her voice, she's also acting it with her face and her entire body, you know, from head to toe. She's making, you know, gestures and using her body in a way that was conveying a lot of meaning. So you came onto my radar because I was outside in Nefoy waiting for Aileen. We are going to have a chat. And I met these ladies who were just hanging out in Nefoy talking about the performance. And they were from a writer's group. And they were spending, it's, they started up during, uh, I think they started up, yeah, before the pandemic. They'd spent five years reading Ulysses and they were halfway through. <laughs> mind-blowing so then I started talking with Joanne one of the ladies there and she told me about you so we'll talk a little bit about you and your publications but also about write on because she made me aware of all of this so answer this whichever way you want to answer it before I do, before I answer it, if I may, and I'm not avoiding the question, I'd love to talk about right on, and I will talk forever about right on. But just uh, when you were talking about Ulysses, 
I have a little party trick that I think I'll share with, with, with you um, for future reference. Many people have purchased a copy of Ulysses, but very few people have actually read it from cover to cover. So the next time you're at a wine and cheese party or a gathering in somebody's home and there's a bit of a library, you can go, oh, look, I see a copy of Ulysses. And you may say to the host, have you read it? And the host might say, well, I tried to read it, but, I, you know, it's fairly tough. And you, Fender, can demonstrate your brilliance by the following. What you can say to them is, before you take down that book and check the facts, let me tell you that the first word of Ulysses is... Stately. Stately. Good man, Fender, he was in... <laughs> And from having watched the Molly Bloom performance recently, he will know as well that the last word of Ulysses is... Yes. Well done, well done, good man. Now, what... And here's my teacher coming out of me. What do we notice about those two words? Stately and yes. They're sibilant. They're sibilant. Um, one's the affirmative. Stately and yes. You've got me. I've got you. Well, it's very simple, really. The word stately starts with the letter S and ends with the letter Y. Whereas the word yes starts with the letter Y and ends with the letter S. So it's now, a palindrome, is it? Uh, not necessarily a palindrome, but I believe, and I, th I think in my study of Ulysses, for which I got an A1 from Dr. Hubert McDermott, when I did finally do my degree. Thank you, Hubert. Um, I believe that uh, it was done deliberately by Joyce to show the uh, circumlocution, to show the, the, round, the roundness of the novel, that, you can, that, that the novel starts at one place and ends at the other, but goes around. I can't think of the name of it. Cir circumlocution isn't the right word, but the, there's a roundness to the novel. It rounds off the novel Zen, deliberately. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about Zen as well, you know. Like I was, thinking, I was talking about Jackson Pollock yesterday, about how the paint went off the page, so the painting actually continues there uh, beyond the canvas, the canvas yes. and then uh, if you think about uh, Andy Warhol and his um, his Brillo boxes, so the shopping experience is a piece of art. That's what <laughs> that's what some people are interpreting those those uh, Campbell's tomato soup. There are so many connections in the last piece that you spoke about. Um, I know that if Nola O'Donnell is listening to this, she will know immediately what I'm going to say. When you reference there about the painting going off the canvas, there is a story in our new anthology, which hasn't been published yet. It's called the Right Hand Anthology 2024, and it'll be launched hopefully by Michael D. Higgins on Culture Night in September of this year. But there's a story in there called The Yellow Van. And actually, the kernel of the story has to do with paint being outside of the canvas onto the mount of the painting. Isn't it funny how these connections come up? Do you miss a loved one that's passed on? Perhaps you miss their voice or their mannerisms. Perhaps you have questions that remain unanswered. Don't let that happen to your children or grandchildren. At Salt Hill Media, we can record your life story or that of a loved one for future generations. So when someone asks, hey, what was granny like? Or what was granddad like? You can point them to an interview and say, you tell me. We can tailor an interview to be as long or as short as you want it to be. 
all with professional recording equipment and post-production. You may think that your life is not worth documenting. Well, not according to your children or grandchildren. Record that life story before it's too late. Email salthillmedia at gmail.com or go to salthillmedia.com for more information. This is the Galway Podcast. So tell me about Right On then. Okay, well, Right On is a very simple story, really. A group of people got together in 2017 to attend a creative writing course given by Charlie Adley. For those of you who don't know, Charlie Adley used to write, I think he still writes a column in the Connacht Tribune, and uh, he writes away at novels and so on. But he had a, a course, a six-week or an eight-week course on creative writing, and I toddled along with a few other people to see what it was about. I have to tell you, on the first night, I felt I was in the wrong company because everybody was able to write far better than I was, and I had to be dragged into the second week of of the of the creative writing course and eventually began to find my feet now that might sound unusual for a publisher who has published loads and loads of books but again there's an entirely different technique for publishing fiction for for making up stories and presenting them on a page it's a different discipline uh, anyway long story short we did the eight weeks we we were happy with each other and then we looked around the room and said what are we going to do on thursday nights now and I said, listen, I'll put around a, page, a piece of paper, write your names on it, and I'll see what I can organise. And you know, being a publisher in charge of uh, many, many staff, uh, I suppose I was used to organising things. So again, long story short, it took about a week and I had uh, set up a writing group uh, of four people. There were four people at the original meeting in Westside. We booked a room and we met there every Thursday night. And people came in we we had a very informal agenda the agenda was to write something to read it and we would comment on it now you might say well that's what a book club does it, the difference between a book club and this was we were writing our own material uh, we decided to, you know to, to make things up there was no uh, limit on what you could do you could write an article for a newspaper you could write a poem you could write a piece you could write uh, anything at all short stories or indeed a novel how it has progressed since then is unbelievable. The four members have now become more than 40 members. There are members now from Australia, from Germany, from America, from Dublin of all places, <laughs> from Kilkenny, from Leitrim and from other parts of Ireland because what happened, I suppose, it was guided by the pandemic. We were, naturally enough, a Galway-based group at the beginning. We met in a physical environment, but then the pandemic hit. And uh, I remember Elizabeth Hannan saying, oh, there'll be no more write-on. And I said to Elizabeth, yes, there will be write-on, because there is a new invention, another new invention that we hadn't heard much about at the time, called Zoom. 
and various members said, but we don't have computers. We don't know how to use laptops. We don't know anything about Zoom. But we very quickly learned where there's a will, there's a way. There's one lady, Anne Murray. I know she won't mind if I single her out. Anne didn't even possess a laptop computer when the pandemic hit. But we advised her to get the laptop. We showed her how to get involved in Zoom. And Anne is a very intelligent, smart lady. She used to be a postmistress in Westside and um, she has many a good story to tell. But she is very quick on the pickup. And I showed um, Anne how to use PowerPoint. And I showed Anne how to put images with words. And I showed Anne how to add audio to the presentations. And now Anne is an absolute whiz on the computer. She can uh, take words. She can get the authors to read the words into an audio uh, thing. Um, she can provide uh, images to go with the, po with the poems and with the stories. And she does a marvellous job. But this is somebody who didn't even own a computer a couple of years ago. So right on, I, I should explain, uh, the URL is W-R-I-T-E hyphen, hyphen, a.k.a. dash O-N dot ie yeah, so right yeah. as in uh, scribble yeah. right as in scribble yes wonderful and can you tell me then how do you meet up now do you meet up uh, virtually still or do you meet up face to face uh, once the pandemic was declared over <coughs> which it may not be yet but when the pandemic was declared over people did ask the question are we going to go back to Westside are we going to meet in a physical capacity we I considered this for all of 10 seconds and the answer was no, we were not going back to a physical meeting. The reason being is that we would lose all our newfound friends from Australia, from Germany, from America and so on. And we wanted to keep the group was working excellently together. People were friendly. During the week, we had a WhatsApp group where people kept in touch during the week. We also produce a newsletter every week, which people read every week. And one of the biggest success stories of Right On was a very simple feature. We purchased a mug. A what? A mug. A coffee mug. And the mug had a little uh, character on it. And we named the mug Mugsy, as you would. What else would you call a mug except Mugsy? So M-U-G-S-Y. Mugsy became a feature. And how did Mugsy integrate... I can feel myself just becoming increasingly redundant here. <laughs> how, Frank's, how, Frank, <laughs> this week's interview is Frank Fahey. <laughs> It being Frank Fahey. <laughs> Sorry, Frank, I isn't nothing. Carry on. You, you just sit there, Fender, for a second. Take, take a breather. Um, why would a coffee... Why would a coffee... Why, why be, would a coffee... Co mug? Be called Muggsy, yeah. Yeah, why would a coffee... Go and Muggsy developed its own personality. But the, 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 here's the thing about Muggsy. We, we didn't invent the, the, the art of flash fiction, but we made up a little game, basically. And the game was that we would give two keywords every month. And members could write anything they liked as long as they used the two keywords. And there was one other stipulation. You could not write more than 50 words. If you wrote 51 words, you were gone. It wasn't even considered. So people started scribbling away the 50 words and putting in the keywords. And then we had a vote on it. We would have 9, 10, 11, 12, sometimes up to 20 entries. And we would present the entries. And then we had our own Eurovision Sound Contest type electronic voting. 
and it became such a, a, a game and such fun that everybody wanted to be called, wait for it, the Mug of the Month. Oh, Can you imagine being called the Mug of the Month and being proud of it? Well, I tell you, they were scrabbling and the they were scrabbling to try and win Mug of the Month. V- virtual punch-ups, yeah. Uh, virtual punch-ups, and people were disappointed. One lady who shall remain nameless had never won the title of Mug of the Month. And she gave up a few times, but we told her, persist, persist, persist. And would you believe it, we had our last Mug of the Month just a couple of weeks ago before we took a break for the summer. And I said I wouldn't mention her name, but good old Geraldine Warren, she won the Mug (laughs) of the Month after four years of trying. And her picture with the mug is on our most recent newsletter. Well done, Geraldine Warren. (laughs) Geraldine Warren, that's Warren. Okay, um, so, uh, so can I can I ask a couple of questions? No, no, you no. can't. I'm in full flow. <laughs> what you really want to know is how did we get around to publishing our anthology? Yeah, I want to get there. I'm going to get there. But my question is, while we're still in the Zoom call, how does that look? You got forty people. Do you share it? Do you? Is there a limit to the call? Because it's very difficult to to chair such a thing. I would imagine. Um, I've, to answer your question, yes, I chair it. Um, now, to be honest with you, we we rarely have forty people at the one time. We have a membership of approximately forty, but they're not always available at seven o'clock. It's from seven o'clock to nine on a Thursday night. Some people join in at eight o'clock. Some people can't come because they have football training and so on and so forth. So it's rare to get the the, the whole forty in the one place at the same time. But we've we have frequently had eighteen, nineteen, twenty people. And you're right, you're right, it is difficult enough to chair, but uh, like everything else with practice, it becomes very, very manageable. I, um, I can see the various faces in front of me, and I, the way it works is this. We present, uh, somebody writes a poem during the week. We I usually send the poem to Anne Murray, the aforementioned. She puts in some images. She does a PowerPoint presentation. We, If the author hasn't already given us the audio, in other words, to read the poem, we ask the author to please supply an audio of them reading it. Uh, Anne then sends me this package. I put it into another package called iMovie, and I add background music. Um, introductory music and finishing music and little underlying background music to create the ambience of the theme of the poem. Um, And this is presented like a movie. And uh, for poems, we present it twice because sometimes you see a poem and it flitters past and it's gone in a minute or two minutes and people say, oh, I have to talk about this. What am I going to say? So we give them a second run at it so that they can jot down a few notes or whatever. And they'll comment on the poem and say, I like the first line, but I didn't think the second line rhymed so well with the third line. Or And then they make positive comments. I mean, the, the group in Write On is a wonderful group. We are all writers. We know that we don't get things right the first time and we, we all we need is a little bit of encouragement and what happens then is the, the poem goes back to the author and they might take on board some of the comments or they might as often happens ignore the whole lot of them and just go ahead with their own bit but um, uh, quite frequently people have changed lines or changed words based on the comments that come up so it, it is um, informal in that sense but it, it serves a huge purpose because Writing is usually a solitary game. It's, it's where you're sitting in a room and you're writing words on a computer or a page or whatever. You don't often, and people don't often, hear the words being spoken. And it's 
it's it's it's miraculous really when somebody reads their own work they suddenly say oh listen i put in i started that sentence with and and i started the next sentence with and 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 then oh look at i started the next sentence down with and you don't notice it sometimes at the time but when you're reading it it suddenly hits you. oh look oh, oh or i've said that before or i don't need that line there's a huge process um, um, that one learns by reading their work out loud. Uh, it happens to me. I mean, I, I, I never publish anything without reading it out loud and hopefully to an audience or to, to at least one other person because by reading it, you find the bits that work. You can, you can slide from one uh, passage to the next uh, gently if it's well written. But if it's clumsy, it comes across as clumsy. You go, uh, suddenly he went, he ventured. You know what I mean? Uh, you can hear the, the clumsiness of the writing when you read it. So the whole exercise, the, the big benefit of write on is people get to read their material out loud. Other people get to listen to it and to comment on it. Now, we never say to somebody, that's a load of crap unless they wrote a piece called A Load of Crap. But um, uh, we never say that. I mean, every piece of writing has its benefit. Every piece of... There are people who have had illnesses, for example, and they write about their cancer recovery. There are people who have loneliness and they write about their loneliness. And uh, people will know that um, psychotherapists and um, psychologists, uh, they often use the method of writing down your, your, your troubles, if you like, and getting it down on a page, it helps the mental, there's a cathartic effect. It helps to cure many ailments. In my own case, writing fiction has improved my mood, has improved my life, has improved my health, and um, without it, I don't know where I would be. It's funny, whenever you're saying that, I'm thinking about me being a teacher and me being an artist. Yeah. So whenever I'm writing reports, I was, I was a teacher in China for six years. Whenever I'm writing reports, my principal always said to us, write two positives and one area for growth. So, you know, little Jimmy's really good at being exciting in class. <laughs> little Jimmy's really uh, enthused about learning PE. Little Jimmy is working towards maintaining a constant state of focus in class. So the areas like that, that's what you, what you could say. Another thing that I'm thinking of is being an artist. Whenever you're an artist and you're putting your work out there, you're putting your core out there. So if somebody was to come along and say, oh, that's crap, you're really attacking that person to the core. You're not actually attacking them in a way you know, less than that. And that's, that's something to be mindful whenever you hear somebody performing a song or doing a picture. Just be, look for areas which you can champion. Yes. So Frank, you were looking through the book there. I was just I was rambling until Frank found his page. Fender, Fender, Fender. Everything you say has a resonance with the write-on book or write-on story. Are you, are you in the, the on your, we're not in the anthology. This is, the, this is A Father's Love, which is very good because this book's being published next Wednesday, the 14th of June, between what? 4 and 6 p.m. in, uh, where is it? The book has been launched in Sul Ella in Barna, which is uh, across from the 12 and across from Donnelly's. It's the, 
it's at the first crossroads in Barna. Can't can't miss it. Beautiful coffee served there. But um, the book has been launched on Wednesday, the 14th of June, which is a significant date in world history because on the 14th of June, 1953, a famous author was born. His name was Frank Fahey. <laughs> it is my 70th birthday. No way. And I decided to have a surprise party for myself. <laughs> and I organised this. So don't tell anyone, but there's a surprise party taking place in the coffee shop in Barna from four o'clock to six. And there'll be hardback co- uh, copies of the book of called A Father's Love and Other Stories. There'll be paperbacks in abundance there. And if you're if you if you don't want that and you want the digital version, it's also available from Amazon on the Kindle. They're all available from Amazon. But Seamus in Sulella will be selling them at the counter and you can just tap your credit card and go off with a perfect Father's Day gift. Um, just while I'm talking about Father's Day, right on, I have just this year produced Father's Day cards, one for a daughter and one for a son. Um what happened here was um, one of our members, Ailish Hannan, the daughter of Elizabeth Hannan, wrote a beautiful poem and somebody had the idea, wouldn't that make a beautiful Father's Day card? So that's what we did. Do you, want to, read the, do you want to read the poem there, Frank? I think I might oh, read oh, Before you do that, there was something I was thinking of there. If you are going to buy the book, I would encourage that you do go to the coffee shop in Barna and buy it because I am trying to get people to get away from Amazon. Because I drove up through the middle of Ireland recently and I was horrified about how decimated our towns and our villages have become. So support local people. Support, you know, if you're going to do a long haul trip, buy along the way. Support these small businesses because we can't let our our little communities go through this. I'm 100% behind you and that is why we we are, the Right On Group, are going to meet. uh, There there will be crowds, there will be queues, there won't be enough coffee. So what actually just, I forgot to mention that the first 15 people in the door that say Frank Fahey's launch will get a free cup of coffee. But don't say that I said that. (laughs) Frank, please read that poem. It looks wonderful there. There's a beautiful card, Happy Father's Day, and there's a version for boys and a version for girls. So I'll read the the daughter's version. A little girl needs her daddy to love her with manly charm, to soothe her when she's hurt and keep her safe from harm. A girl needs her dad to show her a man who's good, to help her make right choices as only a father could. A woman needs her father just to be aware he'll always be there for her to support and care. You've been all these things, Dad. I hope that you can see how much I treasure you. You mean everything to me. Bravo. And, and as I say, there's a, a boy's version. That's Ailish uh, Hannan. Yeah, she wrote the poem and we got the idea of making a Father's Day card. So they'll be available on the day as well. Mm. Stock up with them. Give them give them to yourself or give them to anybody. Or keep them actually and frame them. So Frank, you're, you're going to read a, a 
No, I'm just, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but yeah. you were talking about when you're teaching, in your teaching oh, yes. days, and I was just, I, I was just amazed. This at is how like close, 26 minutes ago, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I was, I'm just amazed at the amount of connection that there is in this, uh, this unrehearsed interview. It yeah. is like as if somebody rehearsed We, we rehearsed you, it for the last nine years. What are you talking about, sir? <laughs> you, um, Fender, were talking about... Um, uh, <laughs> writing reports. You were talking I'm, about writing reports yeah, and parent-teachers yeah. meeting and how you're supposed to encourage the children. Yes. Well, in one of the stories... In is a, this story, Is it? what's it from? A Father's Love and all the stories by Frank Fahey. And that's been released, uh, when is it, on Wednesday, on the 14th of June, 2023, which is the 70th that's, anniversary that's, of Frank Fahey's birth. Is that that's, right? That's the, that's the exact one. How did he get That's the one. Um, that's been released in Anshul uh, Ella in Barda, which is across the road from the 12 pins. Yeah? Oh, I'm glad I, you're paying attention. Um on page 33 of The Father's Love and Other, there's a story about Jimmy Brady. Now, Jimmy wasn't uh, the smartest pupil in the, in the class. And this new teacher was going to the headmaster to say, what will I say to Mrs. Brady? I can't tell her, tell her that her boy is stupid. The parent-teacher meeting will be coming up at mid-term. The ball of tobacco had made its way into the opening of his walnut pipe and was deftly packed with a gentle press of his thumb. A quick flick of a safety match set the leaves ablaze and soon the aroma of burning tobacco filled the air. Now tell me, he said, this is the principal talking to the teacher. Now tell me, he said, blowing a plume of smoke over my head. Does Jimmy behave in class? Of course, I nodded, beginning to feel queasy. My eyes were stinging and I searched the room for an open window. Does he sit at his desk? Does he bother anybody? Someone like Jimmy can distract. How do the others react? Oh no, strange, the boys like him. They don't bother him and he doesn't bother them. Good, good. Is he biddable? Do you ever ask him to... He didn't get to finish the sentence. I was eager to escape into the fresh air. I stood up as if to leave. Jimmy is very reliable. I ask him to empty the bin in the evenings. He helps to clean the blackboard. He brings notes to other teachers for me. Mmm, said the old teacher. So he is trustworthy, solid, dependable. I turned to leave. The frustration of not getting any assistance made me want to scream. Then came the parent-teacher meeting. At the upcoming parent-teacher meeting, I took the principal's advice to heart. As I discussed Jimmy's performance with his mother, I highlighted his reliability and trustworthiness. Mrs. Brady left the meeting beaming and I felt a sense of accomplishment. I imagined her smiling at the other mothers, delighted with her son, really pleased. There would be apple pie with custard for an evening treat. Jimmy loves the custard. Such a good boy. Such a caring boy. And now the new young master is so happy with him as well. Yes, indeed, the height of praise. What was it he said? I must remember the exact words. Ah, yes. Jimmy is a great boy to do a message. Bravo, that's beautiful, that's pretty good.
So I'll always encourage. Always encourage, yeah. Let's, that's let's get back to right on for a second because we kind yeah, of went so, off the yeah, off we, the we, we went off the rails. We, I don't know. We were too busy talking about uh, Father's Love, which is being released <laughs> next Wednesday, fourteenth of June, in Barn at four o'clock. Go on, go on. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, right on because, to be honest with you, this is the main reason why I wanted to get you here. <laughs> well, it's, t- it's time we started talking about <laughs> yeah, it, then, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, I've come up with a strap line in the last couple of days for the Galway podcast which is your champion for Galway I want the Galway podcast to be a champion for the good things that are happening in the city and county of Galway and right on is ticking a lot of those boxes because what it is it's building on the community of writers not just in Galway across the world but it's mainly uh, based in Galway and this for me is the realization of the best parts of right on so do you want to talk a little bit about what you have in your hands? Absolutely. Um, right on, as I just very briefly to remind you, we started in 2017 with four members. We increased our membership. Pandemic came along. We went on Zoom and so on. But right uh, in 2017, we decided that we would gather our pieces of writing together. And because of my publishing experience, my publishing skills, I was able to produce an anthology of the best of our writing. Now, I have to tell you, the very first anthology, the next question, Question I know that Fender is going to ask me is where did I get the funding to produce the book? Let, 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 let me let me let me pause there and then just cut that in. Tell me, um, uh, Frank Fahey, whose book's out next week, where did you get the funding to publish a book, please? Well, uh, we, we, we <laughs> used old-fashioned common sense. We went around to the glorious, I have to say, glorious businesses in Westside. I went around to 27 businesses, the butcher shop, the bakery shop, the cafe, the different businesses that are in Westside Centre. And I was amazed at the generosity of those people. Of the 27 shops that I visited, 23 responded positively. They either gave a gift of money or they gave items that could be raffled and uh, and so on and so forth. But each and every one of the shops, um, there were just, uh, there were certain shops I couldn't go into now, like the bookies. We, we, <laughs> we didn't want to encourage gambling or drinking or anything like that. In fact, the wine merchant fellow said, uh, well, you can't be seen to be encouraging alcohol. I said, give us an old bottle of wine there and we'll <laughs> raffle it. And to give him his due, he did. So in the first year, I acknowledged in the book and anybody who, who buys the uh, anthology 2019, you will find a complete list of the people who started right on, really, because we got the money to do the first anthology. And once we got up and running, the anthologies pay for themselves. So what we do is we don't charge anything in right on we're very flexible about money we don't accept fees we don't uh, push members to pay we simply ask for donations donations are 10 euro per month for four meetings for the newsletter and whatever for 10 euros a month you get four zoom meetings or sometimes five if there's five thursdays in the month um, it is really just to cover the cost of paying for the Zoom software, paying for PowerPoint, paying for different items. Um, money is not the objective because nobody in Right On makes money. We're not here to make money. We don't want to make money. We just want to make enough for the next publication. So what I'm hoping to do with The Father's Love and Other Stories and what I was hoping to do with the Right On anthologies to sell enough of them so that we have money in the bank to do the next one. 
And that's how it works. Um, it's a wonderful, because uh, I was used to working in a very high-pressured uh, publishing environment where you had to make uh, your quota every month and whatever. And it's a very stressful thing. But if you go along with the attitude, uh, look, if I sell 10 copies, I'm, fairly, I'm halfway there to recovering my costs. It is a beautiful life. And everything is, you know, it's not too much hardship on anybody to buy a copy of a book. And yes, it's a real community thing to do. And it's, you know, there is nothing uh, cheap about the material in our write-on anthologies. There is nothing cheap about write-on except the price. Mm, I like that. Like that. So uh, today's we have published 24 books. Now, I'm teasing a bit because I'm counting the hardbacks and the paperbacks together. But very quickly, we have published Write On Anthology 2019, Write On Anthology 2020, Write On Anthology 2021, Write On Anthology 2022, and Write On Anthology 2023. At the moment, I have 400 pages sitting on my computer ready to press the button for Write On Anthology 2024. And we will be contacting Oros Anuthron and Michael D. Higgins in the past as always has lended his support and on Culture Night which I think is on the Friday the 22nd of September but it's in September anyway of this year I'm hoping that Michael D through the medium of Zoom will launch our Right On Anthology 2024 I also at this point have to thank Galway County Council who help us um, with uh, some funding throughout the year it's a big help and we acknowledge Galway County Council on the covers and inside our books as well as well as publishing an anthology every year. Can, can we, I, can I, we're, we're talking a lot about the anthology and maybe we'll come back after you complete the, reading the rest of the list. I would like to know what the anthology is. So, so what's in it? Oh, what's in it is the best of our writing for that particular year. There are from the, from, from the forty writers from the from the writers yeah. from the forty writers yeah. from the members. So what you have is short stories. You've got poems. You've got memoirs. Um, you've, of course, you have the mug of the month entries, which always uh, raise a chuckle. And it's something actually that people should try themselves at home. There's no danger in it. Um, if you were to set yourself the task of writing 50 words with two specific words in it, it is amazing the different varieties you get out of two words, the different thought processes that people have. It's a wonderful exercise to do, even for a bit of fun. And what readers of the anthology can do is they can decide themselves which mug would they have voted for and by contacting www.write-on.ie you may be able to find the winning entry of that particular month but that's just an aside and um, the Write On Anthology to answer your question contains a, a, a variety of, of material all of which it's, it makes a perfect bedside companion because you can pick it up at night when you're tired and read a short story or if you're very tired read a short poem if you've got more energy you can read an extract from a novel and that leads me on to talk about the authors um, and there's one author in particular a man called Seamus Kyo now I know Seamus won't mind me saying this but when we started to meet in Westside in the early days Seamus would saunter in and on the back of a cigarette pack he'd have written some old scribble of an old poem and we'd say to Seamus have you written anything Seamus no I've nothing this week he'd say back and I said but Seamus I see a few scribble ah there are only a few old scrawls I wouldn't be bothered with it alright Seamus we'll move on hold on I'll read them for you so he'd say and next thing off the back of a cigarette pack he would read this poem and we'd all be huh 
wow, did you write that? And um, uh, he then would proceed to throw the, the, the scrap of paper into the dustbin. That's only an old bit that was in my head. And this went on for ages. And I said to Seamus, I said, Seamus, would you keep those bits and, pe- bits and pieces of paper? I said, they, you know, they're valuable things. And not at all, they're only jottings out of my head, he would say. And uh, I said, no, Seamus, you have talent. You have a talent. Please keep the pieces of paper. So anyway, long story short, when we had to revert to to Zoom, um, Seamus had to send in his pieces typed and we began to gather them. Uh. And... So you didn't um, gather at all. He kept throwing them in the. Oh, I kept throwing them away or putting them in a drawer and forgetting about an Irish, them. That's such an Irish thing, isn't it? Don't yeah. put your head above the harbour. Do you think you are somebody? Exactly. You now know. I hope Seamus doesn't mind me ta- talking yeah. about it. And him I, I'm, in, not in about, I'm not talking about Seamus specifically. Uh, no, I'm just talking uh, about you anybody. Know, yeah. yeah, anybody. Yeah. But anyway, the, the upshot of it is, and this is the most fantastic story, really, when you think about it. Seamus last year published his collection of poetry called Sisters, which is part of the right on umbrella of books and if you don't mind i'll read the, love the title yeah. poem but i will also say just before i read the title poem he and i are working i'm editing for him and he has two three he has three parts of a four-part novel wow. written and now these were pieces of paper that he would have thrown away but he is one of the most magnificent writers that I have come across, and I have come across a lot, a lot of people. His book is going to be called The Stained Collar, and it covers a period of time in Irish history from the days of the Black and Tans right up to the 60s, 70s in Ireland. And it is a most intriguing tale. It is full of murder, mayhem, um, uh, you know, it is a it is a history of Ireland. It is a most if if you you know. And by the way, it's like dragging blood from a turnip to get Seamus to write anything. Say, Seamus, will you write another chapter? Ah, go away out of that and don't be bothering me. I'm still thinking out the ending. And he'd be there. He'd be like myself. He'd be walking along the beach, and he said. Uh, what are you doing, Seamus? I, I'm thinking of killing a few people, <laughs> he might say, for his novel, of course. Uh, anyway, yeah, yeah, coming yeah. back to Seamus's book, Sisters, which is a poetry collection by Seamus Keogh, and this is the poem Sisters. Through the autumn meadows strewn with buttercups of glazed petals, daisies with yellow heads, flares of white, and pinkish hue in the morning's haze, Two sisters linked and walked as one, with summer dresses below their knees, treading barefooted through dry, crisp grass, moving to the fruit-bearing brambles along the straggling boundary wall. Each carried a quart milk can, picking berries ripe and plump, black as coal, ruby as altar wine, with bursting fullness, tempting saliva. The lowest berries at the tip of the stalks, stoutest and sweetest of all, reaching higher for ones of choice, needles scratched and thorns pierced. Ignoring the spikes, they plucked and pulled, filling containers to overflow. Sun-tanned arms, dappled with strawberry scrapes, scars of battle with bastion briars. Triumphantly, 
they return home to boil their spoils of sweetened berries and fill brown crockery jars with blackberry jam. That's brilliant, isn't it? You're kissing that book. Oh, look, can you imagine that piece of poetry being thrown into a dustbin? Wow. Do it's reminiscent of, for me, Heaney. Absolutely, absolutely. And and may I say that uh, Seamus's daughter, Kira, is also a poet who, it's very difficult to get poetry from her. She writes the most magnificent poems about nature. Mm. And she has one poem, which is in one of the anthologies. Uh, please look it up if you, if you do get the anthologies. It's about uh, a beach in Connemara. And it's called My Favourite Place. And um, I don't have it to hand, otherwise I'd read it. But um, it is an absolutely magnificent poem. It's like a Paul Henry painting of Connemara. Absolutely. You, uh, you could lead, read any of the poems in the collection Sisters, wow. and it would just take your breath away. That's absolutely beautiful. marvellous stuff. Sisters by Seamus Keane. By Seamus Heaney. While oh, she, no, Seamus Heaney. We're bringing the room here. Kyo. Seamus Kyo. Seamus Kyo. While we're talking about, I, w- I was saying that we publish an anthology every year, yeah. but we also then publish a collection of work by somebody who has a sufficient body of work and that it's good enough, basically, to be published as a separate volume. Uh-huh. And the, one of the first people that I did this with was Anne McManus. Mm-hmm. Now, Anne McManus, again, she is an extremely talented writer and reader of her work. She invented a character called Bridie. Now, I wouldn't do it justice if I was to try and read an extract from Bridie because you need to hear Anne McManus reading it herself. She has the Galway accent and she mm-hmm. does the Loveens and the, the Galway phrases. Um, um, it, it is truly a magnificent. She has a collection called Collected Stories and Poem. It is the omnibus edition. We brought out a book called A Day for Red and New Dawn was the poetry book. But then we merged the two together. And, um, could I read one of the poems? Yeah, please, absolutely. Please read it. I'd right, and um, Anne McManus. And the reason I'm reading poetry and not short stories, obviously, is because of the, you know, I don't want to take up all the time of the podcast and the, po- the poems are naturally enough a little bit shorter. This poem, I think, uh, ranks very highly. Uh, it certainly ranks highly in my uh, estimation. It's called September in Rathanora. The red trasher came in early September to our lane. Sun-tanned men wielded pitchforks, magic wands, tossing the yellow sheaves high in the easy rhythm of the ritual. The stripping of grain from straw bettered any magician's tricks. The steady flow of gold, the pulsing of the machine, the smell of oats and wheat. The tea came in five nagging bottles, sweetened and milked, wrapped in the Sligo champion, rasher sandwiches in batch bread. The men sat against the bulging sacks and murmured among themselves. Some smoked. Then Dan Calway's heavy boot crushed a field mouse into the stubble, staining it red, killing my innocence. Hmm. I was transported. I was transported there. 
again, I, I'm feeling Heaney and um, thinking of, uh, you know, the death of a naturalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of influences there. Yeah. But I was, that's, that's a glorious poem, how, how the... Uh, Anne has a, a, a wonderful knack of the last line or the second last line um, turns something on its head. The, mm. death, the death of innocence by the crushing of a, of a field mouse. Into the stubble, I love that. Into the stubble, it's mm. wonderful. Uh, next we come on to uh, another book uh, by a friend of yours, um, Fender, and it is uh, Out of the Blue by Elizabeth Hannon. The beautiful Queenie. <laughs> Funny enough, I never got into the habit of calling her Queenie. That, that is her nickname. She's a retired school teacher. She was a principal teacher for many a long year. And wonderful, wonderful person. And she has a huge love of nature. And she has a huge love of people. And she has a fantastic memory. And she remembers the way things were back in the day. Her, her, her book is called Out of the Blue. By the way, these aren't just pamphlets. Uh, you can't see them, of course. Uh, Out of the Blue is 240 pages. And mm. um, the, the collected stories is over 300 pages by Anne McManus. These are substan- substantial tomes and they are available in hardback, paperback and or Kindle. Mm. So anyway, uh, Elizabeth Hannon, stories, poems and memoirs. Beautiful, beautiful reminiscences. So you're going to read something from uh, from Elizabeth. And may I state that uh, Elizabeth is originally from Donegal, but she's been spending her married life in Galway as far as I understand. That's correct. That's correct. That's so I, I was uh, scratching my head trying to think what would be the best Because it's all good. Because it's all good, exactly. So I decided to read the title poem, which is called Out of the Blue. My dad told me how he knew his dad was about to die. A family thing. A blue, unearthly light filled his moving car. He U-turned to the final bedside, knowing the words he would hear. When Dad in turn wasted, like a watch unwinding, I lay in bed wondering, would he send me the family thing? Night after dying day, I waited for a sign, afraid to sleep. One night, My darkened bedroom streamed blue, eerie light. Opening curtains revealed no source, no passing ambulance nor car. Praying, I waited for the day. Early morning, the hospital summons. Come quickly, he has taken a turn. Had I dreamt I was awake, enlightened? Or did he really send it, that family thing? Wow. Again, you're kissing the book. This is great. And it's great to see this. And you're punching the air. You're clenching your fists. This is great. It's great to see this passion. I just think I am passionate, uh, passionate about these people's work because... You know, without write on, where would these poems be? Mm. They'd be stuck in a drawer somewhere. They'd be, they, they wouldn't have they, been written. They, they, they might wouldn't have, even they have would, been they wouldn't written. have been written. That's right. And and people now have a have a have a place, a, 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 not only to talk to people 
of a similar ilk, of similar, um, um, you know, leanings towards literature, but they can now actually say to themselves, I am a poet. I am a short story writer. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be a poet and a, or a short story writer. In fact, I had three ambitions. My ambition was to write a book of poetry. My ambition was to write a book of short stories. And my ambition was to write a novel. And I figured when I had those three completed my time, I could see the blue light outside the window and it wouldn't bother me too much. May I mention the book of poetry, which I published a couple of years ago. Just before you called, do that, before you do that, you said the word ilk. And I have a poem for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to recite it. Okay. Ogden Nash, mm -hmm. the cow. The cow is of the bovine ilk. One end moo, the other milk. And that's the end of the and cow. That's the end. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Sorry, I interrupted your flow. For want of a better word, yeah. That's okay. I I, I presented uh, Fender with a list. A list. Sorry, I presented Fender with a list of all of the right-hand publications, which to date are, are are twelve. But when you double them up to hardback and paperback, um, they're actually twenty-four publications, of which we are extremely proud. Um, one of the ones I didn't mention was Building New Bridges, which is a collection of poems by none other than Frank Fahey, and uh, the person speaking. Um, what gave me the courage to put my meandering writings into a book? Well, believe it or believe it not, it was none other than the late Gay Byrne. Mm. Um, I have been writing poetry for most of my life with little expectation that any of the verses would see the light of day in a published collection. But one day I heard the broadcaster of Gay Byrne and he was talking about a stent that he had inserted into his heart. Now, I wrote a poem called Pecking Order as I lay in the coronary care recovery unit because just like Gay, I not only had one stent inserted, but I had four stents inserted. And Gay Byrne decided to read my poem on his radio show and he introduced it and he finished up by saying, so Frank Fahey wrote a piece about this, about, about uh, getting stents. And he's called it Pecking Order. And Gay Byrne said on air, I think this is very good. I really do think it's very good. It will only mean something to people who have had a cardiac incident, a cardiac memory, a cardiac thing. But it is really, really very nice. Now, the maestro Gay Byrne said that about my poem called Pecking Order. And you know what? It gave me the courage to go ahead. Uh, the other thing that gave me courage was I read a collection by the Galway poet Rita Ann Higgins. And I found that some of her poems were about basic things like pains in her elbows and pains in her joints and so on and so forth. And I said, well, I have four cents in my heart and that's that might have the material to be a poem as well. So they were the two influences, really. Um, if you don't mind, I would Please love do. to read the Please poem do. Pecking Order. In the coronary care recovery unit, there is a pecking order. Two stents are better than one. And the fellow with three beats the bloke who has two in a heartbeat. I was the proud possessor of four. Four stents? 
Legend! Stunned, stent patience fawned. Would you like sugar in your tea? My peacock chest puffed with pompous pride, like the assassin of flies in the ancient fable, who fashioned a belt bragging he was able to dispatch to heaven with one blow seven. I ruled the roost, king of coronary care, until the lady in the corner explained why she was there. Waiting for a heart transplant, my dear. Forgive my giddy demeanour. I'm hoping the bank holiday road statistics will pile up in my favour. In the coronary care recovery unit, there is a pecking order. I love that. I love the big reveal. I love that. So, Frank, we're going to have to stop because, you know, after nine hours chatting, I've run out of disk space. And we're going to talk about my father's love, which is uh, being released uh, on the Wednesday, the 14th of June in Barnum at 4 p.m. at Anshul Ella, which is um, across the road from the 12 Pins. So that's your Well, it's, it's now called the 12, by the way. The Pins has been taken out of the name. Across oh. the road from the 12s and Donnelly's. Let's, let's give them all a shout yeah, exactly. at the crossroads. So you want to read a bit more from there. So uh, uh, let's, let's read a bit from, the, from there. And then we're going to talk very quickly about your song. And then we're going to close the podcast with your song. Okay, Frank, so you're going to read a little bit about this. Okay. I, I, I'd a, like a, a little extract from your book. Try a on. little... And I love every story in my book, I have to say, and every story is based really on a true event that happened in my life, the fiction part I add in later. This story is called Peppy and the Tuba. It's an unusual title, and I need to tell you the build-up to this little part here. Uh, Peppy is a mongrel dog that we had, that, that, that a little boy called Temmie had when he was young. Now, uh, Temmie's mother has decided to keep him out of trouble. She joins him up into St. Patrick's Brass Band and he is given a tuba to play. Now, Temmie hates the tuba. He hates the band and he hates Mr. Lee, who's the band master. But anyway, he's been sent against his will down to the, to the, the fair green and... As he's walking along, doesn't he find that Peppy, his dog, has followed him. Go home, Peppy, I shouted. Peppy halted and regarded me with a plaintive expression. Go home, I reiterated, my voice rising in volume. I wheeled about to pursue the recalcitrant dog, who promptly pivoted on his paws and sprinted towards our house. I resumed my journey, reaching the bottom of Magdalen Hill, before hearing a familiar bark emanating from behind me. There was Peppy, head lowered, slinking along in my wake. Oh, no! I'm already late. What am I to do now? It's much too far to return home. Get away, Peppy! Go home, you pup! Peppy had never been allowed to roam free in the fair green before, and the scent wafting from the abattoir proved irresistible. He bounded towards the source of the enticing aroma. Come back, I shouted, struggling to give chase while burdened by the cumbersome tuba. 
Peppy vanished around a corner of the abattoir building. Where has he gone? Mr. Lee will be furious if I'm late again. As I rounded the corner, I was confronted with a sight that seared itself indelibly into my memory. Peppy had encountered a black cocker spaniel, and the two dogs were engaged in a grotesque whirling dance. Somehow, their tails had become entwined, binding them together at their rears as they spun about at a dizzying speed. Get away, I shouted at the spaniel. Leave Peppy alone. The harder the dogs tried to disengage from one another, the more tightly they seemed to be conjoined. I was at a loss for what action to take. Had a stick been within reach, I would have used it to attempt separating the entangled dogs. Unfortunately, I had no stick. But I did have a tuba. Gripping the instrument by the horn, I hoisted it high above my head, then brought it crashing down upon the backs of the hapless canines. The spaniel emitted a yelp and suddenly managed to break free. It fled the scene, whining and limping. Peppy lay motionless on the ground. Oh, Peppy, I cried, what have I done? The impact must have struck him on the head. I've killed you, my poor innocent Peppy. Lord Jesus, pray for the soul of my beloved pet. I'm a murderer, Lord. Take me, but save my dear dog. Distraught, I knelt beside the lifeless form of my cherished companion. A long strand of red gut protruded from his hindquarters. Oh, dear Jesus, I've busted his tummy. I moaned. Oh, my God, I've killed him. Furious with the offending instrument, I kicked the tuba aside and gingerly cradled my deceased pet in my arms. Peppy, Peppy, if you can hear me, I'm so sorry. I never meant to kill you. And clutching Peppy to my chest, I ran out of the fair green, up Magdalen Hill, until I reached the gate of my house. All the while, Peppy's gut dangled from his belly, swaying to and fro. Not a spark of life remained in him. I burst through the back door. Mammy! Daddy! I've killed him! I've killed him stone dead! What? What happened, Timmy? asked Daddy. Peppy got stuck with another dog, Daddy. Their tails were locked together. They were going round and round, glued to each other. I had to do something. I used my tuba to separate them. But I killed Peppy. I flattened him. Oh, Daddy. There, there, son. Let me have a look. You see his gut, Daddy. You see his gut sticking out. Yes, son, I see it. Now you just sit over there and I'll see what can be done. I seated myself at the kitchen table beneath the portrait of Jesus with his heart in his hands and the red lamp that burned eternally for our immortal souls. Dear Jesus, grant me a miracle, I prayed silently. Take me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Let poor Peppy live.
my father scrutinised the limp body. Ma'am, bring me a basin of cold water, he said calmly. Mammy rushed to the sink and filled the basin. Stand back, instructed Daddy. He upended the basin, dousing the dog in a deluge of water. Miraculously, Peppy sprang to his feet, shook himself vigorously and appeared bewildered by his surroundings. His gut magically retracted into his tummy and he looked around in a daze. Catching sight of the open door, he darted into the garden. You saved him, Daddy, I cried. You saved him. He was merely stunned, son, my father explained. No, Daddy, he was dead, as Lazarus once was. You're like Jesus, Daddy. It's a miracle. Off you go now, son, and look after your dog. I found Peppy frolicking in the grass when I caught up with him. His gut had entirely healed. He playfully nudged an old plastic football with his nose. Peppy was the world's finest goalkeeper. Together, we started a game of penalties. Some hours later, Mr. Lee appeared at our front door, clutching a muddy tuba. Mammy ushered him into the sitting room. For a while, they sat in quiet conversation, punctuated by bursts of laughter. They never summoned me. I concealed myself behind the stairs as Mammy said goodbye to her visitor and closed the hall door. I know you're there, Timmy, Mammy said. Don't worry, child. You don't have to go to band practice any longer. You and Peppy are far safer here at home. Marvellous. Oh, I love it. Very good. I presume you got the bit about the gut. I did. It took me a while, actually. <laughs> I thought that, I thought it was giving birth, and then I thought there was the other end of that <laughs> phase, yeah. <laughs> you have to make the reader work, you know, on yeah, these stories. Yeah. You know, you can't tell them everything. Show, don't tell. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Allude to, it's Bertolt Brecht, isn't it? You allude to the emotion. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, Frank, let's talk very quickly about your song. My song. My song is called Building New Bridges. Oh, and it's funny because you have a book called that. <laughs> it's funny. I have a book called Build. Some of the poems became songs. Some of the songs became poems. But they're all gathered in this book called Building New Bridges, a collection of poems by Frank Fahey. The song Building New Bridges came about due to a seismic change in my own life. Um, I talked uh, beforehand about uh, the effect that alcohol had on my life in later years. And thankfully, I managed to, uh, with the help of many good people, I managed to change my life. Um, I had to change my life because I was heading for death's door, to be quite honest with you. Had I continued drinking at that time, I certainly wouldn't be alive today to talk to Fender here on the radio. Good for you. And when so, was that? When did you start uh, again? 20, 2012. 2012, I went into rehab and uh, haven't had a drink since or haven't had a smoke since, thanks wow. be to God. Now, I know that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is anonymous and people are not really supposed to talk about it on the radio or on podcasts. Yeah. But touch wood, every day is a new day and every day to date, um, I have managed to, to stay sober. 
And the book Building New Bridges charts a lot of the episodes uh, that happened in rehab, um, but it also charts, um, how would you say, the, 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 the difficulty of changing everything. I mean, I, I changed everything. I changed my family life, my family circumstances. I changed my friends. In truth, many of my friends died from alcohol. Mm. In fact, one of my very best friends died on my birthday, the 14th of June. I happened to be in Inniskillen Caves at the time, down underground when I got the news on a text message. And I thought how remarkable it was that both of us are underground mm. now. I being alive and he being dead. Um, it's it's just look. There are extraordinary things that happen in life. There are extraordinary things that happen with sobriety, and one of the great things that has happened is the foundation of the Right On Group. Uh, you know, in many ways, it's got nothing to do with alcohol or sobriety. But I guarantee you, if I was still drinking, there would not have been a Right On. There would not be any of these books that we're talking about, and I would be six foot under. I have no doubt about that. I applaud you, for, so, Frank, and I just want to say. For transparency, I'm an alcoholic. I've been uh, dry for 18 years. So um, there's no way I would be who I am today. I've got children. I've got um, a podcast, yeah. you know. Yeah. I've, I've got health. I've got, I've got a life, yes. you know. There's no way that would have happened had I continued drinking. So there's no shame in being an alcoholic, no. uh, you know. And it, it is very, very, very difficult to stop. You know, a, a method I used was a six-month projection, which is something, which it's, it's my own method. Yeah. I projected my life in six months' time, and I just saw how horrible I, it was all becoming. Yeah. So um, that was the, the kick in the ass for me to stay sober. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Can I, can carry good. on. Um, uh, to record some of these things, obviously, my, my creativity and everything else had been stunted by alcohol. And then the relief of rediscovering. I'll just tell you a small little anecdote. I play the guitar, I sing songs, and during my drinking days, I could rattle off Bobby McGee on Sunday morning coming down, and I wouldn't miss a beat and I wouldn't miss a word. When I got sober, I couldn't sing. I could Not that I couldn't sing, but I couldn't remember the words. <laughs> I was going, uh, was he busted flat in Baton Rouge or was it in New Orleans? And, and who was it that flagged down the... You know, I began to question the words and to think about them. I had to relearn the art of performance. Which you enjoy doing, I assume. Oh, absolutely. I love, I love playing the you guitar. Would, I love singing. I would never have guessed that about you. <laughs> <laughs> Frank... You know, this has been a long podcast, but I hope you can see that I've really enjoyed our time together. And I didn't know, this is an interesting one, because you bubbled up towards me, and usually this, usually I go to find my interviewees, but you came towards me through two different directions. It shows me, you know, one through my friend Elizabeth, and one through Joanne Darling from the Right On group, but also she's in the Reading Ulysses group with the other ladies. So... I didn't know what to expect. And to be honest, you'll leave here and I don't know what what will have happened. I'll have to listen to the podcast about nine times. Nine seems to be the number I'm using a lot. But, uh, but yeah, I've really loved our time together. And, you know, you have a guitar there, so uh, you're going to talk a little bit, obviously, about, <laughs> about this uh, song. 
So, so take it away. When are you going to let me talk? That's what I want to know. Have you See, started the, the, recording? The, the, this is what happens whenever I give him, you know, less than 90 seconds to talk. He's like a dog without a bone. Yeah. Fender, I really, really enjoyed the last five minutes. Um, I've, I've enjoyed my time with you tremendously. It is great to speak to somebody in the creative arts, as somebody who understands poetry, understands reading, and also understands music. It is always a pleasure and hopefully we'll meet again after these podcasts are, uh, are, probably are well next and truly June, done. Uh, June the 14th. Uh, June the 14th in, will in, be a night day in Barna. At four o'clock. As it happens there's a new book being Is launched. There? It's called A Father's Love and Other Stories. It's on right on. Uh, it's a right on publication. <laughs> O N well, dot the, the dash a. technically speaking is we call it a hyphen. W R I T E hyphen O N W R I T E hyphen O N dot I E the right on group. Um Thanks again for t- taking the time to listen to my, my stories and to listen to the stories of the Right On Group. I f- finish by saying they're the most wonderful group of people. And uh, I know that some people are going to be traveling from Germany, from as far away as Kilkenny, from Dublin and so on and so forth. But imagine coming all the way from Germany for a, 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 a launch of a book that just shows you this caliber of people that are in the Right On Group. And I am humbled and honoured to know each and every one of them. I'd like to finish by trying to play a song on the guitar. Um, I'm well able to play the guitar, but my fingers are a bit arthritic at the moment, so I'll bundle my way through. Um, This is a particularly um, poignant song for me. It's called Building New Bridges. I named my poetry book um, Building New Bridges. And it really talks about um, the changes, the change and the changes in my life uh, that had to be made in order that I could be here today. So building new bridges um, with the guitar and uh, thanks again. And mending my fences The old been replaced with the new But what's tearing my heart Is that we're still apart And I'm afraid of losing you I'm trying to remember Things I've forgotten I'm finding it so hard to do Bottled inside Are the feelings I hide From the world From myself And from you My life took a tumble In despair I stumbled And booze made me bitter and blue Recovering my senses, I dropped my defenses To myself, I tried to be true 
I'm building new bridges and mending my fences. The old's been replaced with the new. But what's tearing my heart is that we're still apart and I'm afraid of losing you. For me to recover, I had to discover the difference between false and true. Shedding the mask was no easy task. I'm no longer the man you once knew. Cause if everything's changed and my life's rearranged, what will happen between me and you? Can you help me discover? Can we ever recover? A love that once was so true. I'm building new bridges and mending my fences. The old's been replaced with the new. But what's tearing my heart is that we're still apart and I'm afraid of losing you. I'm building new bridges and mending my fences. The old's been replaced with the new. But what's tearing my heart is that we're still apart. And I'm afraid of losing you. This has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production.